0: My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am excited to welcome David Lorimar. David is a writer, lecturer, and editor who is program director of the Scientific and Medical Network a founder of Character Education Scotland and former president of the Reckon Trust and Swedenborg Society. Originally a merchant banker and then a teacher of philosophy and modern languages at Winchester College, he is the author of over a dozen books. And his most recent book, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, is A Quest for Wisdom, Inspiring Purpose on the Path of Life. Welcome to the program, David. So, how did you become interested in in the afterlife? I am kind of jumping ahead, but I know Swedenborg was a huge influence on you, and I am such a fan of of his work. Can you elaborate on that a bit?
1: Yes, I mean, I I've always I was always actually interested in walking around cemeteries, um, and and um, you know the people's dates and their descriptions and who they were uh, and so this this gave me a sense of the the preciousness of life if you like that we're here for a short time you know we have a date that we've we've begun our lives and there would be an ending to it as well so it will be an end date and in fact just as it happens the, uh, the last poem i wrote um was um at a a, a a sort of derelict um cemetery and chapel about 10 days ago very much about this whole business of the passing of time uh, and then my my mother was was interested, as was another family friend, um, in these these topics. And um, so I I, um, I felt that one needed to understand death and the nature of death if one was going to understand life. And so so I that that was really my impulse for for writing these first two books, uh, that uh, to to review um, what had been thought. And about <clears throat> the life, the afterlife, or life beyond death, and also judgment and karma, and then see what the implications of that were for living one's life, and and so I've I've always taken life quite seriously, uh, in that sense, uh, and wanted to you know, to plumb its depths and, and find out what I could, and write about this. Um, in order to be of some help to other people.
0: I know that you talk um, also about Dr. Albert Schweitzer, and I looked up his book that you refer to, Memoirs of Childhood and Youth. And I just want to want to um, speak on a quick description of his book. It's autobiography, autobiography, and he tells of his first 19 years in the upper... and his youthful discoveries of religion music and the inspiration of friendship even in his boyhood there were traces of what was to become his reverence for life as a boy he writes, he managed to dissuade several companions from going fishing because of the pain he felt the deed gave to both the worm and the fish. And he goes on just to describe what a sensitive, what a sensitive child he was and, and memoirs of childhood and youth. It eventually led him to dedicate himself to medical service in African colonies. So does your childhood, just the nature part of it, and does it relate to what Um, Dr. Schweitzer is talking about. Why was he, why did this touch you so much, his memoirs?
1: Well, I didn't, my first encounter with Schweitzer was actually through his playing of Bach's organ music, um, because my my mother had these these LPs, long playing records, and I used to listen to those, and I, I really fell in love with that when I was about 15 or 16, and I, I I taped them onto my 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 very old tape recorder and I listened to them when I was at school. And and so I've I've had these preludes and fugues um, really running through my system. Um and I have had, you know, for 50 more than 50 years. And so it wasn't until later that I found out about Schweitzer's life um, as a medical missionary and a musician. He had four doctorates. He had a doctorate in philosophy, theology. Uh, music and medicine, and and uh, I read that that book, um, which I also taught when I was at Winchester, because I think it's such a valuable book. Um, it's a short book for 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 young people to read, uh, because not only does it um, talk about his his life and how he started playing the organ when he was nine, and his sensitivity to nature, uh, and the fact that he was always a bit of an odd one out. Um, with his his contemporaries, um, but it also talks at a later stage about ideals. And he he said he says that you should under no circumstances abandon your ideals, um, because if you think you're um, you're you're lightening your craft as it were, actually what you're doing is you're throwing out your supply of food and drink and so he said as you grow older you should grow into your ideals not abandon them and i never forgotten that uh, <clears throat> because i do regard myself as an idealist and um, as someone who's you know, striving for ideals and I, but at the same time i realize that the there is um there are you know, very severe shortcomings in human nature and human society so one can't expect um you know perfection or, or even know really compassionate society to arrive anytime soon but the important thing for me is to have that as your compass direction so i, I often yeah. put it in this i say i'm 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 trying to work towards a culture of love and wisdom and i i got that for a little bit from schweitzer but also that that brings one um back to to swedenborg as you you mentioned before
0: yeah I also heard you mention that you were a sensitive child and, and felt like you didn't fit in at times. So I'm sure that you could relate to some of his stories too. And I think it all brings it back full circle circle that now you're working with young people Mm -hmm. because it's a big part of such an influence on you and, and related to uh, that
1: was that. I think that, that, if you get through these difficulties, then it does make you stronger. Uh, and um, another thing I just wanted to mention is that uh, when I was a child, I spent a lot of time climbing trees, and and I would I would spend, you know, an hour or so or more up a tree during the afternoon, and and this was really a kind of I realize, um looking back on it, a kind of communion with nature, and that. Uh, I was generally being in the tree. And, and I can still see the, the leaves fluttering and the view down to the bottom and, and just the, the peace of being um at one um, with one of one's favorite trees.
0: Swedenborg, I, I was so excited that you, he was one of your, I guess I'll call him a, a mentor, um, because I've I've studied him some and I've just been so Fascinated by him, so share a little bit about him and why his teachings were were so profound for you.
1: Well, I I came across him you know via my study of French literature, in in the mm-hmm. last um, year of of university at St Andrews, because I was reading a Baudelaire poem which is called Correspondences, and in the notes it said that this idea of correspondences came from Swedenborg. And I'd also seen other references to Swedenborg. For instance, Balzac was, was influenced by him. And I was studying some of Balzac's novels, not the one, Serafita, which is apparently inspired by Swedenborg. Uh, and so I I, I got the biography of him by, by Trowbridge out of the library. And I, I stayed in one evening and, and, and started reading it. And I was absolutely riveted um, because here was a man who was actually one of the great engineers and scientists of his day. Uh, and he wrote a you 700-page know, book on the brain, um, for instance, and he was an engineer. He had plans for um, flying machines and submarines, a bit like Leonardo in that sense, although he had no artistic um, ability like Leonardo. Uh, and so I, I thought... Well, I then got started getting more, more of his books out, and as soon as I went to London, i joined the swedenborg society and i bought quite a few of his central works and i suppose the two most important ones to mention are heaven and hell where he describes his experiences and encounters with people who've moved, who've passed through the veil and, on the other side uh, and some very very interesting um, stories um, and around that or rise around that and then the other one was called divine love and wisdom And there was a big, fat tome that I read, probably in 1975 or so, called The True Christian Religion. And I was struck by the centrality of love and wisdom, and also by the way that he said that the wine and the bread um, corresponded to, to love and wisdom, respectively. And so communion was, in fact, the reception of love and wisdom, symbolized by the wine and the bread. And I, I find this a much, much more congenial idea um, than this literal idea of, of the, the vicarious sacrifice and the atonement, um, which Swedenborg himself didn't really believe in. And, and so his was a deeper spiritual sense and of the Bible and symbolism and life.
0: Wow. How I, I grew up in a Christian church, a very small one, and, you know, we had communion regularly. How different it would be for a young person for it to be presented to them that it's love and wisdom, and then drop on that for, you know, other, other Bible studies or whatever, you know, the teacher is doing. And while you're in church, that would just be so, be so different. Um, can you tell the story, just because the listeners love these stories, or I think they do, I love these stories, <laughs> about when he found the receipt for his widow, or there was, um, can you tell that story? Yes,
1: that's one of the great stories, um, and because the, the philosopher Kant, uh, he he wrote a, a scurrilous book about Swedenborg called Dreams of a Spirit Seer, but he did check these various stories out, including the Stockholm Fire, and this one, which is about the, the the, the Marteville receipt. So Baron de Marteville, who was an ambassador, uh, he he died, and his widow received a bill um, for something which he thought um, he'd already paid for before he died. But there was no evidence for this, and so she consulted Swedenborg, and Swedenborg said, "Well, I'll um, um, I'll, I'll have a word with uh, your your late husband and ask him where where it is, or if he, if he knows where it is." And after a week or so, he he went back round and said, "Yes, it's, He said exactly where it is. It's in his bureau, his his old desk. And if you if you look at look, if you pull out this drawer, then you'll find there's a secret drawer which pulls out at right angles. And and in that drawer was the receipt. And and it's it, it, there's really, if you look at the whole evidence for survival, it's a very good um, piece of evidence. Um, because when it comes to the crunch, there are only two theories that you can use. One is that the, the, the mind does survive death, and therefore it, that's what Swedenborg is describing exactly what happened to him, i.e. he communicated with um, the spirit of Varel de Martaville, or you know, it's a kind of um, super ESP, as they say, where everything is, is available as a memory and you, you tune into that memory, but there's no actual survival. And, and this to me is is i mean it corresponds to the akashic records but it it's not a very economical um hypothesis because um, it is really not specific enough and and so i did, i would trust swedenborg swedenborg says i spoke to this this man and then i would take him at his word and and it's right. it's a it's one of the stories that is as i say it, the interest of it is that the widow did not know where this receipt was, uh, and the Swedenborg got the information, and um, which he couldn't otherwise have known.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there are so many amazing mediums out there that I that I've either seen or I've interviewed that this evidential, you know, the evidential um, things that they bring through, just like Swedenborg, or it's just. Irrefutable, really, in my mind, but so fascinating. So, moving forward, you became director of the Scientific and Medical Network, and I know you're chair of also the Galileo Commission, who um, I heard about from Dr. Evan Alexander when I when I interviewed him. So, can you tell us a little bit about those organizations? Yes, um,
1: the Scientific and Medical Network was founded in 1973. And by some senior people with a background in education, science and medicine, as you might expect. And they were all concerned that medical and scientific students were being indoctrinated with a materialistic understanding, which is probably even more the case now than it was 50 years ago. and And what people don't realize, or most scientists and doctors don't realize is that this is this philosophy is not necessary in order to be a scientist. In other words, you can have a spiritual philosophy and be a scientist, rather than being committed to materialism and the idea that the brain gives rise to consciousness and that there is no possibility of any kind of extrasensory perception, no possibility of survival, no possibility of children remember previous lives. Uh, all of this is actually ruled out um, by, by this materialistic understanding. And so <clears throat> what they wanted to do was to 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 explore this interface uh, between science, spirituality and consciousness. And we've been running conferences along these lines um, for for many years. And the Mystics and Scientists Conference, which I've been organising for over 30 years, uh, began in 1978. And then I instigated the Beyond the Brain Conferences with the Institute of Genetic Sciences in 1995. And so those are now every year, so I'm planning that one for November this year. And I think the Mystics and Scientists are going to be at the end of July because the um, pandemic meant that we had to cancel it last year and we've got no live meetings this year. Everything's online. And so the Galileo Commission um, was set up about four years ago. And the idea, the metaphor that we're using there is to ask or request or suggest that scientists Uh, look through the telescope at um, evidence that actually calls into question the adequacy of this idea that everything is material, that matter is primary. And and so we we commissioned a report by Professor Harold Wallach to to look into this whole area of those sort of spiritual and psychic experiences, uh, but also philosophy of science, and to make it clear that that there is an underlying philosophy to science or to anything, if you like. You can't get away from that, so there are assumptions and presuppositions. And the primary one, so far as psychology, philosophy and neuroscience is concerned in this respect, is that the brain produces consciousness. And this, if you think this, then it, it, that's a, it's a theory that works very well, um, on the whole, until it comes to near-death experiences out-of-body experiences, apparitions, children remember previous lives, extrasensory perception, all of that can't be explained by a materialistic understanding. And so that looking through the telescope means looking at this evidence rather than dismissing it or pretending it doesn't exist. And this was the position with the professor of philosophy at Padua, who Galileo said, I tried to get him um, to uh, looked through the telescope, looked through my glass, but he he resolutely refused to do so, and I just don't think it's good enough for scientists to refuse to look at evidence, um, because it seems like it contradicts um, this underlying philosophy, which is not science, as I've just emphasised.
0: Right. Yes, so it does seem. We've got a summit
1: different. coming up quite soon. We've got, we've got these these summits who are, who are running, and Evan is going to be talking in one in May. And so the next one is the 9th and 10th of April, um, where we've got some round tables with some of the leading consciousness researchers.
0: And
1: that, that's online, right? And that's online, Yeah, So your listeners can certainly um, find the details of that. Uh, and yes, I think, so I think there, there is some movement and in, in the field, and more and more people are taking the fundamental nature of consciousness seriously. And and even in academic philosophy, um, there's a move towards, at least, panpsychism, the the idea that that matter and um, mind, in a sense, are are complementary. You can't can't separate one from the other, which at least is better than imagining that um, consciousness is like steam coming out of a kettle, um, when you can't even have free will that's what that's what's technically called epiphenomenalism something very difficult to 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 pronounce but it's the idea that, that that the consciousness is just a byproduct and has no capacity to to do anything which is manifestly nonsense so far as our own um, experience is concerned there are all, there's also there are historical reasons why um, science has evolved this materialistic philosophy in reaction to religion and particularly catholic religion and the dominance of catholicism and of philosophy in fact the whole whole range of knowledge and and so that that and that science broke free from that and and a lot of people still there's the atheists sort of militant atheists feel that anything that lets any any Anything through the cracks is just you know, inviting superstition and magic back, which mm. which science has has got rid of. Uh, but I, I think this this shouldn't apply to, to spiritual experience, to, to you shouldn't assume that spiritual experience is pathological or um you know you don't take it seriously. Um but it does require, as you say, an open mind um, to look at this and and the, the the difficulty is that the 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 whole story of you know the big bang and evolution and so on the the under underlying that um is the idea that it's all random and chance and that evolution is about natural selection well it is but that's not the whole story and so it's it's difficult for scientists to to admit another principle um, that as uh, uh, over and above matter uh, so in the medieval period people would would put spirit as primary and now, now our culture puts matter as primary and materialism both in terms of philosophy but also in consumerism you now it's assumed that you know material goods and consumption um will make you happy um, which they won't you know one's experience uh, eventually will Tell you that, so so I think that I think it's understandable, um, and there's peer pressure involved as well. The it's it's difficult to get involved in certain research areas, um, if your department um, says that this is not a legitimate area, because everybody wants to be accepted and respectable, uh, and there's a huge social pressure um, to to remain orthodox in your thinking, or at least um, to be creative, but only within certain boundaries. Right. And that we desperately need to evolve our consciousness in a direction of love, compassion, wisdom, and freedom. And our freedoms are even being taken away now. And, and this is a crucial time, really, to you know, to insist on the what I feel of the evolutionary, as Barbara Marx Hubbard said, that evolution is towards the expansion of consciousness the expansion of freedom uh, in a loving order and i love this idea in loving order but yes. i do think there is order and moral order um in the world and and i've written quite a bit about that in in my books and you're right rebirth and reincarnation is one one form of moral order
0: right so let's talk about children. And all of this has such huge implications on on our future and our children are our future. And I know this is something that you're passionate, passionate about. And you talk about um, quoting this, the divine needs to be recognized and integrated into the human being and realized. And basically, you said it's, it's the golden rule. So let's talk a little bit about your work with the young and how the importance how you feel this so important that we we bring this these six things that are in your mission and truly bring them into a child's life love wisdom truth justice and goodness now anyone you talk to would say that of course of course yes. that's important yes but but we're, but I, you're talking about something so much deeper, so much more soulful. So, so, can you just elaborate elaborate on your work and how you feel about the implications of what you're doing with the our young generation?
1: Yes, um well, I, I spent eight years teaching um, in both in Edinburgh and at Winchester. and i I used to have um, discussion groups for some of the very bright pupils. And so they would come round for tea or they would come round on a Friday evening and and we would sit round my dining room table by candlelight and talk about life, the universe and everything. And and some of those people I've still kept up with and they've actually supported my new book. I've got endorsements from some of the scholars um, who I taught at Winchester and sort of helped set them on their path. Um, But um, it was after that that um, Within the context of the Scientific Medical Network, I, I read a book called Laws of Life by Sir John Templeton. And what Sir John was concerned about was that young people should understand what some of these laws of life were and apply them and live them. And so he had a Laws of Life essay competition, um, which had prizes and so on. So I. So, I initially, I started trying to see whether I could replicate that. Um, and then I came up with the idea of a process um, rather than just an essay, um, because it's difficult to get children to write more essays, and some children aren't very good at writing essays anyway. And so, the, the, I came up with this idea of what we call a poster template, and the template has three main elements, pages. Um, one page is devoted to thinking about your personal qualities, your virtues, um, your values, uh, in terms of um, a a number of different dimensions. And so there's the moral dimension, the intellectual dimension, uh, the civic dimension, then sort of resilience dimension, um, which is called a performative virtue. And and so that's what one needs for sport, um, for instance. So that's the first section. And then you might also um, add um, an inspirational story and the second section is about who inspires you an exemplar and and so you, you you choose someone originally people could choose their parents but we actually said they couldn't after a while um, because we wanted them to look a bit wider and and then an inspiring quote um sometimes related to that inspirational figure and and sometimes you've got we had some quotes on the on the original website so for instance one of them was from and the deaf and dumb, um, blind Helen Keller. And um, she said, life is either an adventure or nothing. And and often what would happen was that student would click on that and they would think to themselves, what a great quote. And then they'd find out who said it. And they were absolutely amazed to read her life story and then they would realize that their, their life, actually, their circumstances are really quite favorable compared with hers and that they should just get on with you know making something of their lives. So that's the second section. The third section is aspiration, um, which is what you want to do with your life, what you want to contribute, what's your vision for a better world. And these, these, um, these poster templates have been through a number of um, versions. The first one was just called Learning for Life. So although it has a spiritual underpinning, um, we never use the word spiritual. And so learning for life, and then it became inspiring, inspire, aspire. And so going from inspiration to aspiration, then it become inspiring purpose, and um, which is what we're trying to help young people tap into. And my whole um, educational approach is that I believe that this inherent wisdom is already within all of us, within young people in particular. And that you can, we provide a template whereby they can um, they can realise this for themselves. And so, in the first section on values and qualities, they have to say what they're good at in four different boxes with different words that they have. They can select one of those, and then they also need to um, say what they need to work on. And this is a hugely helpful exercise because they've never really done this before. We're talking about ten to sixteen-year-olds. and and they they're quite hard on themselves they find it more difficult to um, think of what they're good at than to think of what they're not so good at and 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 so what i'm trying to do is education in the real sense of the word which is to draw something out um, and this potential this realization and and that they can happen to life not life just happening to them and that their satisfaction is going to be in service in helping other people uh, in doing something to improve the world leave it a better place leave a legacy uh, and so if i can you know initiate and that and help that process along um, by this exercise then i i feel that's achieving something worthwhile mm-hmm. and then you can work through it and maybe discuss i think what's nice for parents is is to is to talk about um you know <clears throat> what we had a version for instance pa- grandparents and grandchildren about the first world war and so they did this together and doing something together like this at sort of intergenerational can be hugely valuable because it enables parents and children to have a serious conversation about life and the things and values and virtues and things that are important and um, whereas most of the time it's you know can't find your games kit um, you know your You're arranging to take them singing or um, ballet or whatever else. And and, and you you don't have the opportunity so often to sit down and and talk about the more important things which um, are meaningful to all of us.
0: Um, I know you quoted in one interview, I don't know his first name, Huxley. Yes, Aldous Huxley. But about kind. About mm-hmm.
1: Yes, well kindness is a manifestation of love and, and uh, he, towards the end of his life, he said um, that it's a bit embarrassing to say that the after 45 years of research and study, the best advice I can give to people is to be kinder to each other. But it's good advice and it's actually the same advice that Schweitzer gave. And there is um, a section towards the end where I was talking earlier about ideals it's in the same section where he says that we underestimate we're not serious in the matter of kindness we underestimate um, the importance of kindness and so I-, I think this is this is a possible way and i'm talking to to friends about this it's a possible way um of getting people to participate personally in- and in their neighborhood um to to spread kindness because it's something that we can all do You don't need an exam qualification or anything to to be kinder, kinder to others and kinder to yourselves as well. That's also important.
0: David, what do you think about, you know, I think of the life reviews and the near-death experiences where there's, you know, tens of millions of people now have have shared their profound stories and transformations of life. after having an NDE and the live review is just, you know, I walk through my day thinking about the life review a lot that what really matters is how you treat others. And, and of course, kindness is in love, which as you say, kindness is a manifestation of love. And if our young children that we could tell them through stories matter of fact I'm thinking about writing my second children's book about this in a children's way I'm talking about younger children but the implications of the of the life review and what how do you think that could that could change the change the world
1: well that was what I was trying to do with my second book which is now called resonant mind but it was called uh, hole in one um, the near-death experience and the ethic of interconnectedness and that came out in 1990 so over 30 years ago because i <clears throat> i look not only at um the the life review in the near-death experience but also reports of the life review um, in post-mortem communications and so people, people died described the same process and it's absolutely identical in other words if you if you put two counts alongside each other you couldn't tell which one was post-mortem and which wasn't it's the same phenomenon in other words and then um there is a history of this uh, you know in within christianity and, and other religious traditions that you are accountable um for who you are and what you've done and and that's that that seems to me to be the um the bottom line but the the premise of it though um which i've come to understand more deeply is is that there is only one mind there's only one one consciousness there's only one life and we are all participating in that we're all expressions of the same life and this this enables the the feeling of the life review to to take place in other words for us to experience an event multi-dimensionally a past event not just as you experienced it but as everybody else experienced it as well and and it's my belief, and I, I'm going to write a shorter book um, about this, um, it's one of my next projects, that, that if people really understood this, and, and I'm talking about politicians and business people and people with a lot of power and worldly power, if they really understood this, that there is one mind, one heart, one consciousness, and that what you do to others you're doing to yourself. And uh, then you know, the world will be a diff- different place. I'm convinced. Right.
0: Absolutely, and I think another component of that it's it's very hard, difficult for human beings to wrap their their mind around one consciousness. And when you're doing something to someone, you're doing it to yourself. And that's that begs the question or not the question, but the <laughs> conclusion in my in my thoughts that one needs to really dive into these near-death experience you know stories and and learn the research about as Marjorie Wolcott talked about the filtering of the of the brain and to trust the universe and it's just so important that it's out there but just really opening up your hearts and minds and learning about it because we owe this we owe this to our children and to, real, to our universe, to our environment.
1: No, very much so, and so I think this is this is kind of basic metaphysical education, then, um, mm. like, yes. uh, because it's it's if if people arriving on the Earth now in this materialistic age that we we live in, and that what what they're told about nature of life, um, doesn't really give them much of a clue about the reality of things. And and what they learn at school um, is just really functional knowledge, largely, to get them a job. And and the whole ethos of education now is very utilitarian, and that it's all about getting exams, going to university, getting a good job, and and then producing lots of things and consuming lots within the economy. This is completely secondary to the inner life and to the real cultivation of finer human qualities and finer consciousness.
0: Well, I love how you put it. We need to learn and teach our children, which I think they do it innately until they're, you know, until they become seven or eight and and are not so close to the source as they were when younger. but. To live from the inside out instead of the outside in. And David, how would I get a hold? Or we, you know, we in America just go on Amazon to try to find a book. So, um, where can um, where can someone find your book? Well, I've also
1: I've, I've just set up my my the new version of my website, davidlorimer.co.uk, which went live today actually or yesterday. Oh,
0: congratulations! So my last question to you, if you could walk with yourself as a five-year-old little boy, what would you say?
1: Uh, what, are, you, are you asking what advice I would give my five-year-old self in that sense? I'm well, what, 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 what would I say? Well, I I think it's I think you we need all we all need to tune into who we really are. At this deep level and Mm -hmm. and 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 to live from that powerful spirit within us and and that sensitive soul within us and because if you do that then then you'll really fulfill the blueprint of your life and and so you really have to you have to have a sense of being on track and keeping on track because each of us has has a different track if you like but i think to ask yourself on a regular basis am i on track and when you got important decisions to make this is this is where it's really important and significant and um, and you'll get a feeling um if you are on track because your inner voice will will tell you
0: yes i think
1: so i think my advice to my younger self would be you know stand up and have the courage of your convictions but do it with love and wisdom and courage.
0: Well, thank you so much. It's been a delight to have you on the show. And I really, I really appreciate.
1: Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yes.
0: Well, have a great evening. And I'm sure I will meet you soon in one of these, one of these beautiful conferences that you're putting on.
1: Wonderful. Okay, well, thank you so much and and have a good rest of the day yourself, Marla.
0: Bye
1: bye. Okay, bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you.